Good morning, good morning. Welcome to Stay in the Loop with Lucy. It is Sunday morning. You know what that music means. This is a show that covers health and well-being through connection to people. People in our community and people beyond who share with us their experiences, their decision-making and consequences, and regardless of age, their innate wisdom. By discerning and getting a sense of what is transferable from what these guests share, we can choose to apply the relevant aspects in our lives and in our community and develop programs that found a more sustainable, loving and heartfelt way to be with each other, thereby improving our physical and our mental health. Today's show is a focusing on an inspiring woman in our community who I had the pleasure of meeting through my Rotary Club in Warunga, Jo Carolis. Good morning. Hello, Lucy. <laughs> Joe was sergeant at arms each week and would ensure we put our week into context, that we behaved, that we were accountable for our behaviour and that everyone was welcomed. And today you have the opportunity to get to know Joe through her experiences, what she saw growing up, what her normal was and how she ended up working in schools and had brought an incredibly solid understanding that love needs to be part of our education system. I couldn't have, I, I thought about how my introduction could go for you, Joe. and I think really the best introduction is for people to hear you and what you bring and what you've done and how you have got to where you have got to. Thank you, Lucy. It's lovely to be here. So can you tell me a little bit about what life was like for you as a child? Well, I was born in 1942, so during the war, and uh, we lived in Smithton, which is in the far northwest corner of Tasmania, so fairly isolated. Um, I went to the local primary school. Um, I, I think our, our, I had a sister, and the two of us spent much of our time by ourselves out in the bush, um, which surrounded our house. We had a lot of freedom. Um, we also were expected, a lot was expected of us. We used to um, walk home from school. Sometimes we walked to school as well, which was a good two miles. Um, and when I think back now, comparing it to today, you know, that's a lot of freedom and a lot of responsibility, really. Mm. Um, uh, my father expected us to be tough. He, um, crack hardy was one of his favourite sayings. Um, so although we lived in a time which I'm going to talk about or I'd like to talk about with, um, when girls were se certainly second-class citizens, um, he expected a great deal of us and, and he, we had to be like boys in many ways in terms of the physical work around the house and in the garden and carrying wood in for the fire and that sort of thing. He didn't give us an inch, but... Um, which is interesting when you think that um, we were growing up into a society where girls were always in the background. Absolutely, and and often protected and seen to need to be protected from that hardy world and, and you know, toughing up. Yes, I'm not so sure. I think women's job, lives were very tough um, in many ways. It's just that they were not thought to have um, the capacity to take on responsibility in society in any kind of leadership role. Or, In fact, I remember vividly, and this seems very apt this morning, um, when I was finishing my schooling, which was by that time we were living in Launceston, and um, 
we had various careers experiences and one of the opportunities was to go to the local radio station um, and see how that worked and I was really interested in the idea of broadcast journalism um, and the 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 guy who um, was CEO of the um, radio organisation, um, his daughter was actually at school with me. Um, but nonetheless, um, he told us, and there were groups of boys and girls in the, who'd come along, he said, none of you girls should be here because you cannot work in radio because people do not like listening to the female voice. It's too high. So there'll be no career for you in radio. Oh, <laughs> no way. So isn't that interesting that things have changed so yes. much? Mm. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. I'm sure there are going to be so many things you say today that are just going to have me sitting here with my mouth open. So thankfully it isn't television because the shock. I I mean, I I clearly was born in the right era because even 10 years earlier, 15 years earlier, and I would have... I would have been in serious trouble and being told <laughs> of so much. Um, you also had a great understanding and and uh, and I call it understanding rather than sympathy or empathy, but with the Aboriginal history of Tasmania as well, didn't you? I had no no awareness of it at all. I think that was typical of my generation. Um, we were told that um, the Aboriginal population just made being completely wiped out. Um, in those days, it was believed that there were no remnants at all, nobody still alive who was Aboriginal. Um, and I, I had a, a because I had an uncle who lived down the far west coast, um, very isolated. Um, and all around that area, there were middens. Um, the remains of the Aboriginal people were everywhere, you know, and. Um, I think being on the land, you just got this sense of how they lived. And mm. I, I don't know where it came from because it didn't come from my parents. My parents had the typical um, justification that mm. in the Aborigines were just so far behind in terms of development that it was inevitable that they would be wiped out. Mm. Um, and I don't know where it came from. It was something about the land itself. And seeing those middens and understanding in that windswept environment that you could love so much, I just knew somehow that that there was much more to them than I was being told. And I had opportunities later in life to connect with Aboriginal people and to make my own efforts at rectifying some of the terrible things that had been done. Yeah. Beautiful. I know we'll cover we'll cover that. I hope we'll cover that at the end. Um, so, what part did love play in your upbringing? Because you, uh, I, I, people of this show would know that I call myself a love bug. That is just the way I approach everything. I think I found a fellow love bug in you. So, what part did it play as you were growing up? I would say mostly with my sister. I had a sister who was two years older. Um, we did everything together, but she always looked out for me. Um, when I think back to my childhood, I think very strongly of um, of that relationship with her. Um, our parents were very, very loving too, and they gave us lots of opportunities. Um, but parenting was different in those days from mm, the way it absolutely. is Absolutely. So they were more... I, I wouldn't... Um, I wouldn't really have described ours as a loving household because it wasn't. You weren't supposed to love in that way. Yeah. Um, my mother used to be very affronted if somebody would 
um, seek to hug her or kiss her, no matter how long their friendship was. Mm. We didn't touch, you know. It was, mm. it was not at all a tactile upbringing. Which is interesting, isn't it, when you consider how important we know tact- uh, tactile yeah, relationships are, you know, just a hug. I know that my mum always said to me that one of the things she misses most as she gets older is that people stopped hugging her. Yes. And because she doesn't have a partner in her life, she, she misses that. Yes. Um, you know, and I, so I, we make a point whenever we're around each other of just hugging as much as possible. Oh, I totally understand. I will always be hugged by anybody, complete strangers, and I'm conscious of enjoying it, of appreciating it. Yeah, lovely. Um, So you mentioned that women were second-class citizens. That must have been very difficult, and yet you went to school. What did you do after school? How did you get into the workforce? I actually found that difficult. <clears throat> I went to Sydney. I moved. Um, I went to university in Melbourne and then moved up here to Sydney. Um, I came with a friend from college, um, but she soon went back. So I was fairly lonely here. Um, I found it difficult. I, I applied for different jobs. Um, it's my own fault because I also applied for a job at the ABC and radio and was offered it. Oh. But, but the salary was incredibly low. And yeah. so... I said, no, I can't live on that. Um, So I then tried out for the public service and I got a job as a research assistant. And that was a fantastic opportunity because I just just was lucky. I stepped into a role where they wanted to promote women. And I was, my boss gave me all sorts of opportunities that were quite exceptional for the times. What was your first degree in? History. Okay. Yes, I did a double major in history. (laughs) I loved history. And you ended up being a teacher for history, didn't you? Yes, I did, but I never intended to. When I left school, the one thing I knew was I will never teach. (laughs) I couldn't stand the way teachers had all that power in the classroom and could just make decisions for everybody. I hated it. I saw it as little petty despots. Yeah, fascinating. Listeners, you will understand this when we get to the end, how extraordinary that is particular comment is and how actually I think I believe you changed really a lot of the schools you went into uh, by working with teachers from that place. So you started out as a researcher in public health? Uh, No it wasn't in public health. um, I worked for the um, public service board Ah, um, and I was given specific um, research tasks. Um, One of them, the first one was in the GPO, which at that time was very often on strike. And um, there was a belief that it was because the male branch had been taken over by secret communist leaders. Oh. Um, (laughs) Sorry. Shouldn't laugh because it was very serious back then, wasn't it? (laughs) Well, it was part of that reds under the bed phenomenon, you know, that everybody was made afraid of things that didn't really exist. Very much like today, in fact. Um, But when I went in and did the investigation and talked to everybody in the the male branch and elsewhere, I found actually that the guy in charge was an absolute bully. Um, (laughs) He was also inclined to run run his hand up my skirt as I was sitting there interviewing him. Wow. Um, And so I I just made that report and it was easily rectified and all that communist threat disappeared. Isn't it your truth? What you say is very true. It is still the way people are controlled nowadays through fear. Yes. If you want your agenda 
um, put to the top of the list, you will you will use fear as a tactic because the majority of people have a high value for security mm. and personal security above everything else. So it's not even the security of a of a humanity or of a country or of a nation or of a community. It's personal responsibility. And if you really want the utmost fear and the utmost control, you'll make it personal, won't you? Yes, absolutely. It does. It's a strong weapon. Wow. Yes, bullying in a whole different uh, category there. Jo Carolis is a woman that cannot be described by her achievements in life. Uh, you have to really understand what was behind everything that Jo did. As far as I can see, there is so much of what Jo did. I, I'll, I'll, I mean, you'll pick it up as we go through, but you know, um, so far in our relationships this morning we have got to the fact that you are working as a researcher at the GPO you have stopped the bully who was uh, grappling with your leg as you were trying to research <laughs> um, the Me Too campaign clearly was not up and running back then uh, and but things changed didn't it because you fell in love that's right. I'm, I met this very handsome Greek man. Um, and we, when we decided we would marry, there were, I couldn't stay in the public service because in those days married women were not employed because they were keeping a job from a breadwinner. So there was no way I could stay in the public service. So Con said um, he really thought I should be a teacher, that I would be a good teacher and I'd enjoy it. But most of all... I would be at home in time to cook his meals at night. <laughs> oh, dear. And when we had children in the holidays, I would be able to care for them. Well, there's a dilemma for you. You had to go and be a despot when you didn't actually agree with... Absolutely. Teaching. I struggled a lot with that. Um, but, you know, I knew in, in becoming a Greek wife, I was taking on a culture in yeah. which women had their place. My When I first met his family, the um, his sisters and mother were in the kitchen and the men sat down to eat the meal. Oh, my goodness. They didn't even eat together. No. So I sat down with the men and they waited <laughs> on us. <gasps> so wow. I knew what I was getting myself into. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I accepted, well, I've just got to do this. Because you loved. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But it was amazing because that first day in the classroom I found... I really enjoyed it. Like it was an amazing revelation to me how much I loved it. So, did you do primary or secondary? I was teaching history, secondary. Okay. Mm. Wow, you went and into everything. In those days, you had to fill in. So I also yeah. taught French and English. <laughs> oh, what fun! Um, and being a young teacher in those days, the young teachers always taught the children in the lower classes because they graded classes um, on so-called ability. And um, so I very early found the difficulties of kids who were relegated and treated as um, lesser because they weren't smart intellectually. And I saw straight away the beauty in those children. I think that influenced me. I only stayed one year in that school because... I won't mention the school, but the headmistress was a terrible bully herself. Mm, mm. Um, but I really, really valued the girls and they taught me a lot. Where did you go from there? I left there and went to Skakes Darlinghurst. Okay. And, um, and that was a much better experience mm -hmm. um, and I loved it there. 
But even so, um, very strong. Well, I'll, it was a time when um, the teachers' union was um, advocating for equal pay for women teachers because in those days women got 75% of the male salary. 75 wow. Yes, and, you know, we were doing exactly the same job. Yes. But um, our headmistress in those days, Barbara Chisholm, she called the staff together and said this was a completely unreasonable expectation that women would get equal pay with men um, and that if that were to be brought in, then obviously women would lose their jobs because men would be employed instead. The only really thing we had going for us was that we were cheaper than male teachers. How did it feel having that as your, you know, person in charge telling you that? No, I really admired her. She was a wonderful woman in many ways. Um, but I was furious, absolutely mm. furious. Um, but then I got pregnant and left teaching and stayed home for nine years. <laughs> right. And then when you went back to teaching... Um, is, did you get the job straight away as a head teacher? No, no, I went back as a classroom teacher, but okay. I went back to the same school with the same headmistress. Okay. So, um, that's how I got the job back so easily. Yes. Um, and then um, the headmistress changed and times changed yes. in the school. Yeah. Um, I, got, um, I got into a lot of trouble because... Um, teaching history, I believe in enacting. You know, I believe yes. that for children to understand history, they've actually got to be put in the situation. Mm. So um, when I was um, teaching French Revolution, I told the girls to think about the things that to them were unfair and unreasonable yeah. um, and what they would like to do about it. And and um, we actually had them demonstrating on the lawn outside oh, the fabulous. principal's office. And the head of history made a very strong complaint about me um, to the principal. But I was lucky. She was very understanding. And Yeah, you brought history off the page and you made it real for them. Yes, it's the only way you can do history. You have to be, stand in the situation. You have to have empathy and walk in the shoes. It's a cliche, but it's the only way to do history, I think. Well, and, and history, I seem to remember, is always someone's version of events and history of rewritten to suit the people who whose story they want to, you know, tell. That's right. So it is, it is by putting yourself in someone's shoes. I, I, I often wonder how anyone could have made some of the decisions that they made in the war, but then... You ha if you sit and consider the, the you know having to make those decisions and they no one would make those lightly. No one makes decisions. No, actually, there are some people that do, but I hope <laughs> that most people consider very carefully the decisions they're making. But I think that's where politics goes a little bit wrong because they forget what it's like to be the person on the ground. And and when we get to talk about St. Lucy's, um, that's one of the things you did very well was get people to understand what it was like for children with disabilities and how completely amazing they are, but they, they need a little bit more help. It's not, you can't just give the same funding because they need different resources. And the, and the only way to make people understand that is for them to come and see yes. and experience it themselves. Yes. So in trying to get politicians on site, the only way was to bring them into the school. Yes. 
Yeah. So um, you, how did you go from being an activist classroom teacher, let's just name it, to being asked to head up St Catherine's? Um, well, I began by the um, my head of department retired and um, I'd been appointed head of history and then I became head of curriculum at the school. Um, and then I was 44 and to me at that time 44 was very old and clearly I was near the end of my career. Wow. And <laughs> that's how I thought. Yes. And in the school library there was a recording by an English teacher at the school and she was still there. Um, and she was very boring, you know, because she had lost interest. But in this recording, her vi- voice was vibrant and alive and wow. she was a wonderful teacher. I thought, I'm not going to stay teaching mm. until I lose it the way she had. Mm. And so I tried to, I applied for different possible careers um, and failed at that. So then um, when the school became available, St. Catherine's principal retired, um, I applied for it. And somehow or other, I got it. Amazing. <laughs> yes, I thought it was very amazing at the time. <laughs> but you know, it's that, it's it's almost like there was a bigger plan for you. And it was saying, oh, okay, yes, you can go and try and do all of these other things. That's absolutely fine. But when you look back now, clearly the bigger plan was, Joe, come on. You are going to do this role. We're just going to let you experience a few other things. But you're coming back. (laughs) (laughs) My guest this morning is Joe Carolis. Good morning, Joe. Hi, Lucy. We are talking about Joe's life, um, where she started 1942. This beautiful bub is born into this world where women have no say. Um, where women are not allowed to work if they're, well, they're second-class citizens, but also not allowed to work if they're married, Um, that they're expected to be home, um, to cook and to clean and to take care of their husbands. And we've now come to the point where Jo has managed to get herself a job as the headmistress of St. Catherine's. So now, bearing in mind... We also have heard that you consider teachers to be despots. Now you were in charge of a team of teachers. What did you discover and what, what, what plans did you have to change this, this ethos? In those days, um, St. Catherine's was um, streamed. I, I should explain the previous headmistress had been there for many years. She was a scientist rather than a teacher. Um, at a time when there was very strong belief in the work of IQ, or on IQ testing, um, which was like a thief of new science in education. And so she committed to it totally. So every child was given an IQ test and put into their class accordingly. And they stayed in that class for every subject, regardless of how they were performing. So if they did um, very well, much better than would be expected because they were in level C or level D, uh, they were told they were overachieving. Whereas if they did not as well and they were in the A class, well, of course, they were chastised for underachieving. Wow. And there was no sense of that intelligence is a, um, of all many different kinds. Mm. And it, it, um, there was no way anybody could move out of it. So you were in the C class for the whole of your school career. And that was extraordinarily demoralizing. Yeah. And when I went there, I discovered that the 
the year 10 girls, uh, particularly year 10, year 11, those um, who were in the C or the D class uh, were behaving appallingly badly. Um, their capacity for um, opposing the system um, was just extraordinary. They were very inventive. But it was to the point of putting excreta in the bags of the girls in the A class. And, okay. You know, they were in a bad way. Yeah. Um, they were their behaviour was saying something was desperately wrong. Wasn't absolutely, it? and I got them into and and I talked to them to a whole group of them, the leaders of the our position, as it were, and I just discovered how their self esteem was so low and how, and I I just. I mean, I knew nothing. You know how you're supposed to introduce change slowly? Overnight, I just wiped all streaming in classes and we had mixed ability classes right through the school. Amazing. And you can imagine the outcry from parents whose... Whose children were in the A. Absolutely. It was... (laughs) But, you know, there was nothing to do but just tough my way through it. And it was extraordinary that people did accept it. It was um, amazing to me. I love the fact that you just went in and changed it overnight. Regard, you know, whereas now we've got we've got people who are paid to say you do change in increments. That's absolutely <laughs> right, and I see the wisdom of that. But yes. you know, I'm a bullet gate person, I guess. Well, and it was ripping a plaster off. It wasn't working. You were having you. I, I suspect there were more children who are damaged by it than who are benefiting from it. Oh, absolutely. And taking, making it mixed ability classes wasn't going to actually do harm to those who were smart. It was actually going to support everybody to have more understanding and more... Because everybody has something to give. Yeah. And um, in those, once the classes were mixed up, um, there was a much wider friendship circle. Everybody could mix with everybody. And so there were lots of benefits for the girls themselves. I think that's why it worked fairly quickly and easily. You often talk about um, the students being mentors themselves and teachers themselves, don't you? Yes, I think students are often the best teachers, especially for the, you know, it's the way I like to organise a classroom so that kids are working in groups and they're learning from each other. Um, and they have to be... F- compatible groups um but i enjoyed mixing them up you know throwing in somebody who's very creative and um coming in as a tandem as it were to upset those who were very down the middle doing the right thing and answering the questions in the expected way i i've just finished reading your book um with enough love and in it i can completely see that you are you know you enjoy throwing a rebel into something that looks very structured just to ensure that it questions and it just because people who are very good can actually be very unhappy because they're so used to being good and towing the line and doing what they're told that they're squashing their expression and they may have so much more to offer but be afraid to go outside the box absolutely and unfortunately um the hse really cements that um because the way answers are marked um you do best if you give the expected answer and those who tend to answer um differently which is creative and imaginative and shows much greater, deeper understanding, they don't do so well. And I hate that in that exam. Mm. Have they trying to change that or is it? do you think it's a long way off changing? 
I think it's very difficult when you make accountability the touchstone for education mm. because how do you measure progress, you know? And it, the only way to do it that's fair and consistent and reliable um, is in a way that asks everyone to be like everybody else. Um, Which, it, of course, we're not, are we? Really? No. So you get reliable results. You get consistent results. Um, but really, to my mind, they're not valid. They're not measuring the things that we actually need students to achieve. I remember when we first came to, when we first moved to Australia, not understanding what NAPLAN testing was and not understanding why everyone was so up in arms about the, the tables, the school tables. I just didn't really think anything of it. I just was so educated that that's how it was. In the UK, there was always a table saying who was the top school. I was never going to go to it, so it didn't really, didn't really matter. And my children were unlikely to go to those schools, um, mainly because they were so heavily academic that they had held no appeal to me because mm -hmm. I could see the reduction of the, of the person to just tick boxes. But I also feel that it means that those children miss out on the magic of play and the magic of fun and seeing life beyond their marks. And I believe that the mental health of young people now is showing very clearly that that way has to change because the parents who have been under that normal are now bringing up their children in that normal and so are pushing, pushing, pushing at home as well as at school. And the playfulness that we used to have in our homes, you know, go out to the park, don't worry about homework, that's all gone. You know, it's they go from activity to activity, from homework topic to assignment to everything else. Now I'm, I, I look at it so differently now, so differently. Yes, I know. We um, have... We've lost the notion of childhood because it's now seen as preparation for adulthood. It's Everything's a preparation for your child to succeed in the future. Yeah. But it's not. It's the most important years of your life because that's where all of the um, potential that you have to enjoy life is laid down yeah. in, those, in your childhood years. Um, it, they're not just a preparation for the future. And they're, they're a preparation for a very warped sense of future because it's all about academics, whereas there's no real life skills. And again, when we when we do start talking about St. Lucy's, you, in fact, um, I'll come back and I'll, I'll quote something out of the book, which really does talk about the life skills and what education should be about which made my body go, ah, <laughs> we need to have this sent to all schools. You know, that it's, it's about more than an HSE result. And that was one of the pleasures when you went to St. Lucy's is no one asked you about Absolutely. the results. Yes. We have been talking all about Jo's life, about her career, about what made her the person that she is and what she brought to each of the jobs and she's gone from being a researcher a child I should say in Tasmania on the beach feeling the history of that country to being a, a researcher at the GPO to being a teacher um, on, the, in, on the ground in the history class and then now finding yourself as headmistress of St. Catherine's, which brought with it a whole load more challenges as a leader than, than anywhere else. 
there were some there were some challenges in that school that were beyond what you expected, weren't there? Uh, yes, there were. Um, I, I think being head of a school, the worst thing that can happen to you is when you lose a student um, or a staff member. Um, and it happens. It happens probably increasingly in schools. And I don't think there's any way you can deal with it because that sense that ultimately you're responsible um, is so strong. So my first experience was in my first year there to arrive at school one morning and be told by the deputy that um, one of our teachers had committed suicide overnight. Um, It was the most tragic time. He was a beautiful human being, beautiful man. There was no, we had no understanding Mm. of why he would do it or that he would do it. Mm. He was full of life, full of um, the joy of life. He was funny. He had a young family, um, was very highly regarded by everyone, and I still do not understand. Um, But that was shocking. You know, it was shocking to be met by the police and interviewed and to discover that, in fact, he'd already said goodbye to the girls the day before. Wow. And so it was... was, um, I I, I still can't deal with it, frankly. No, Um, I understand. And then afterwards we had um, a student who took her life and it became clear to me that um, the boarders knew about it. She was a boarder and she told the boarders she was going to do it. She um, gave all her belongings away. They never told us. They never spoke a word. But her boyfriend rang the school and said he was afraid she would do something. So I interviewed her father and said, what are we going to do? And he said, oh, I've got a friend who's a psychologist and he's working with her. I was too ignorant to know that the worst thing is to have a family friend as a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the boarders knew she'd been molested um, by a friend of the family. Right. And it, it all came together. It was all so obvious afterwards. Yes. And, and I felt very responsible because I hadn't known enough and my mistakes were there you carry it with you you don't let it go and yet we don't support people to talk about it because we keep saying we must never talk about suicide that was an issue at the time yeah um and it um the the i spoke to the people at prince of wales adolescent unit um they, in fact, came out and, and told me what I should have recognised. They were f- quite strong, actually. I mm. found it um, very confronting. But they also told us how to prepare the girls and how to talk about it. Mm. Um, and the, at the time, as you say, there was this thought that you never... For fear of copycat. Mm. Um, but the girls were grieving. This is one of their friends. Yes. Um, so, yes, we did everything. We had a memorial service for her and we spoke about her and we made it very central in the life of the school amazing and there was a lot of criticism but it just felt you you had to deal with the children's grief can i say that that's unusual there are not a lot of schools who still to this day deal with it in that way um i i know of a number of children who were told when it happened in their school they are not to talk about it they're not to mention that person's name again they're not to use that word that's terrible yeah yeah, it, it it scarred them. I mean, yes. you know, to this day, they're they're scarred by 
by what that and actually one of the one of the people that happened to was David Siter. He often he's talked about it on this show that you know for him he was told that they, they they wouldn't be talking about it and so he now offers his services to go in schools and and educate and talk if anything happens. I've, I do find that extraordinary. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think, again, it's fear of copycats, but all the research says that is not what happens. Yes, I That know. bringing understanding and understanding the ripple effect of a decision like that is, is one of the preventative measures. Yes, I'm sure that's the case. Mm. So you ended up deciding that you couldn't stay? I'd been there 13 years. I think yeah. that's quite long enough for anyone to be in a school, running yeah. a school. Um, so, I, and I was tired and yeah. I wanted to deal with Con's death. I hadn't we ever, I just worked instead of dealing with it. So, yes, I retired. I was 58. Um, and one of the things I wanted to do was to start a school for children with disabilities as a kind of halfway school mm-hmm. because it really, really made me mad that um, most of the church schools were not accepting children with disabilities. Um, They were tending to be selective anyway, um, but children with disabilities didn't get accepted, whereas I believed your school should represent the whole population, so that means you should have at least 2% of your school, which is probably 20 children with disabilities, Um, and just as you should have Indigenous students as well to represent Australia's population. Yes. Um, Anyway, so I thought if I start a halfway school and we prepare children with disabilities to go into regular schools, then I would be able to get them into these schools that were not accepting them. And I actually talked to quite a few of the schools and got their headmistress or principals of agreement to it, but I couldn't get the money to do it. Um, So I just gave that up and that's when I saw an advertisement for principalship at um, St Lucy's, which is a school I knew of by reputation as being a leader in terms of special ed- special education. I thought it was a school for the blind because that's how it was represented. And so I applied. I didn't really expect to get it because I was 60 years old. That's old. I, was, um, I thought it was old at 45, so it was 60. <laughs> And on top of that, it was very, it's a Catholic school and I'm not Catholic and it's a primary school and I've only taught children in secondary classes. So I thought, oh, yes, I've got Buckley's here. They saw your magic, didn't they? That's where, again, it's not, it's not logical, some decisions, but you had a, a champion in the chairman of the board, didn't you? Yes. Chairperson of the board. Yes, I did. Beth Gilligan was um, an absolutely wonderful chair of the board and um, yes, she fought very hard for my appointment because it was criticised and the diocese criticised it as well. Well, a non-Catholic, yes. hello. Yes. My guest this morning is Joe Carolis. Hello, Joe. Hello there, Lucy. We have just whipped through a few years of your life, haven't we, this morning? It has been fabulous to have you. I feel that... Um, Really, to top this off, people should understand that Joe has written a book called With Enough Love, My 10 Years as Principal of a Very Special High School. Needless to say, it is published by um, Captain Honey because it couldn't be published by anyone that didn't have sweetness and light and gorgeous deliciousness at its core. Yes, they're a wonderful couple, the two women. Yeah. Fabulous. 
you've just arrived at St Lucy's in our tale so far. You're teaching children with disabilities by embracing their abilities. And one of the things that I read right at the start, you've, and this was actually with your, um, in your interview, I found myself pouring out a stream of words about how schools should be joy-filled places where learning is an offshoot of the adventure of living, not treadmills treadmills shaping students to be widgets in the country's economy. Love it. I just, you know, I just went, yes, I'll take a placard with that to government. (laughs) Um, And there was another bit where we talk about um, you you are realising the apology that very often goes with children with disabilities um, and yet the parents are, the parents see the love of those children and you've got a line here that says, my job then was to help them see these children not as a mistake or error of nature but as an expression of God. Yes. Stunning. So tell us about your first couple of days. At St. Lucy's. They were a surprise because I thought it was a school for children who were blind and it always used to be. But over the years, children with vision impairment were accepted more and more into regular schools. So St. Lucy's children were those who had intellectual disability as well as vision impairment. And of course, the numbers got increasingly small. Um, the causes of vision impairment, many of them were addressed. So the school had begun in accepting children with other kinds of disabilities, but they kept promoting themselves as a school for the blind because it was easier to get people to donate um, because blindness was an acceptable impairment. Intellectual disability was not an acceptable impairment. Mm. People tended to withdraw and not, not feel any connection to those with an intellectual disability. So my first day, I, I prepared for it. I was 13 years a headmistress. I gave assembly talks every day. I was really able to do this. Mm-hmm. And I walked out into the playground and the children were all assembled there. It was, I was really taken aback at the way they were running around and the teachers seemed unable to control them. And I noticed that this beautifully prepared talk was not having any resonance whatsoever. And so I then stopped and they all went off to class except for a little Down syndrome girl who came up crossed her arms like this, looked me up and down and said, Miss Bossy. (laughs) Awesome. She was spot on, absolutely spot on. And she continued to call you Miss Bossy for a while, didn't she? Uh, Yes, uh, it was my name. (laughs) But, But, you know, that was... That's in a way summed up my whole experience there because I learnt, I realised in that moment that the children had their own insight, their own wisdom, um, that it put me on an equal footing with the children from the start. Uh, It it was an amazing moment. It sounds like they were your children right from the get-go and they were going to let you know. (laughs) (laughs) Because you see, children who've got intellectual disability can't be managed the way you manage children, I'm afraid to say, in ordinary schools because there you've got all the social expectations working for you. You've got the parents um, expecting their, their child to fit in and do the right thing and so many ways in which we control children in an ordinary school. Children with disabilities, you can't control that way because it means absolutely nothing to them. 
You mentioned something just before we went to the break. In fact, it might have been off air about um, herd and how we like to be part of the herd. Yes. I noticed that children with intellectual disabilities, they have no interest to be part of the herd. They're exactly. on the outside. They know they're on the outside. They've grown up that way and so are used to being considered as different. Whereas children who don't have that as they grow up, they are fearful of that and so again that fear and control of standing out of being naughty of of doing the wrong thing it's much easier and and the children at St Lucy's by this by reading your yes. book because I have no hands-on experience just kind of went yeah whatever no <laughs> so not gonna work Absolutely. that part of my brain does not respond to what you're trying to do <laughs> yes um there's a wonderful honesty in them, mm. um, which and a sense of innocence and a yeah. kind of purity because they're free of those social conditioning effects. But also, they're completely non-judgmental. Mm. You know, they just as they don't make judgments about other people, and it's beautiful. Um, we used to have the children from the next door school, Pruill School, which is next door to St Lucy's. Um, come over and join in theatre classes with our children, a bit of reverse integration. And I remember we interviewed them before they started because it was a bit of an experiment. Um, and they said lovely things like, we want to help the children and so on. And they can't, you know, do what we can do, so we can give them a hand. And then we interviewed them at the end of the term of them coming along. And they said, oh, they're just like us. And one little girl said, well, you know, there are things I'm not good at either. I'm terrible at dancing. And one said, and this really resonated with me, she said, when it started, I didn't want to get up and do anything because I was feeling shy and embarrassed. And then she said, I thought, well, who else is going to even notice or care? And so she said, it was really liberating. And that's what they loved about coming, that there was no judgment. Judge, they weren't being judged by anybody. They were all just having fun together. We can learn so much from that, can't yes. we? Yes. Yeah, it was a wonderful experience. It's, it's, they were the best years of my life without question being at St. Lucy's. And they embraced your bossiness as well because on your last day, was it young Harry who in, in asked you to come up there and do your, you know, to get everybody in order a little bit? He yes, found his best, right. char- best bit and then he said, no, it needs, uh, you know, did they call you Miss Cariolis? <laughs> well, mostly they don't manage the miss, miss or missus, so okay. it was, I was generally called Carolas. Carolas, mm-hmm. come help. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are, um, I, I also read about some of the more tender moments where children helped children. There was a a story about um, the young boy who died who was um, who came in very close to his passing with his dad and um, one of the boys who were they were great friends went and just lay his head down on the on the on the pillow next to him that there were those moments of tenderness that put everybody else in the room at ease who were sort of stuck by the social awkwardness of a potential situation? Yes. Uh, children who have disabilities, um, for some reason, they're, they're just full of love. Um, they love... I, mean, I don't mean that they don't hit each other and become aggressive and do nasty things. They do. Mm. Um, but fundamentally, they're, they're activated by love. Um, and you see it so purely in them. So um, Harry was um, had um, an incurable disease, 
And in his last days, um, his father brought him to school for our end-of-year Christmas celebration. And he'd said that he was coming, but they didn't turn up, and I thought, Harry's obviously not well enough. Um, But we're halfway through this end-of-year celebratory assembly, and then I heard the noise at the door, and there was Harry with his father, Lyle, and he was pushing him in in his bed um, on on wheels. And Harry was just almost inert on the bed Mm. and there was a terrible hush in the room everybody was shocked because death had entered the room Mm -hmm. and one boy came forward and I immediately tensed up because this is a boy who was um, quite aggressive and unpredictable and he just came up and as you said he just lay his head next to Harry's on the bed and I'm just bent over and lay his head down next to him and everybody just relaxed then you know because that was it Harry was dying and we all loved him and we wanted to say goodbye it was an extraordinary moment they're very resilient aren't they children and I don't mean that in the way that we champion resilience now that you can push through and you can get through but actually they bring an understanding to so much more than we give them credit for And I thought that I understood um, about sensitive children. Um, I believe that all children are incredibly sensitive and the behaviour that we see, particularly what we class as dysfunctional behaviour in in mainstream school, is as a result of of sensitive children not being able to express themselves and not feeling heard. Yet the way... The way... the way they cope with what's in their lives and sometimes very dysfunctional parents and very dysfunctional homes shows their natural innate resilience. It's just not resilient in the way that it pretends that it's not happening. And you really nurtured that at St Lucy's. I I feel like every school could learn from what you implemented there and how you got the teachers to see... Um, slightly outside even the box that they were working and that was working so well before you came? Yes, um, it was really important, I realised. And the teachers were very good with this. Teachers at St Lucy's are brilliant. They're the most wonderful people. Um, But we learned from the children. We let the children teach us what was important for them. And once you accept that... A child's behaviour, especially when they have no language, their behaviour is their best means of communication. And I think for all children, um, particularly when they're up against the wall, you know, when it's life's difficult, um, it's their behaviour that they use to communicate. And so you just had to look to see what what was bothering them, what was the underlying difficulty. And sometimes it was a noise, sometimes it was light. Um, other times it was it was quite a social thing, you know, that um, I think with some of the children um, when I went there, I think it was that they knew that they were being looked down upon, that they were being... Um, because we were using um, a lot of behavioural management theories, um, some of them knew they were being manipulated. They saw it as manipulation. Wow. And they hit out against it. Yeah, rightly so in yes. a way, isn't it? And in their own way, you yeah. know, like sometimes physically aggressive, but also by just urinating. Yes. Um, 
very natural response when you've got no other outlet. It's a great way of getting you, you, back at people. You get naked, get to the top of a witch's hat That's and right. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I really admired the teachers that you described in the book and how they, how they turned up for school every day and it was clearly a family. And, you know, change was as... Di- they're not perfect because change was as difficult for them as for anybody else. I mean, the, the thought that you were going to actually now need to look at the extension of St Lucy's and bring in a high school just before you were leaving yes um showed that everybody had had a an understanding of where you were sending these children back to the teachers wanted it it was the teachers who yeah. pushed for it as much as the parents um because we were increasingly accepting children with quite severe disabilities and there were no Catholic school options for them. I'm really glad that St Lucy's is now implementing that and the new high school begins next year, which wow. is wonderful. That's mm. fabulous. I'm, I'm quickly just desperately trying to find the the words of now. I'm trying to think of the teacher it was. Um, Oh, hold on. Here we go. Thank you, whoever helped me find that book, that part of the book. Uh, so, hold on. Nah, 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 nah. Leaky bird. Um, this school isn't a business, she said, standing as tall as I'd ever seen her and staring at the board met- members one by one. It's a mission. That's what it says on the school logo. You talk about Dominican values, but you tot up the dollars and weigh the risks. Well, this school wouldn't be here if the early Dominican sisters had thought like you. They'd not have uh, set out in a leaky boat from Ireland. They'd not have loaded up a cart and gone off to start a school with a blind when all they knew about was teaching the deaf. You don't want the risk and the trouble. Well, you don't have to want it. You just have to do it. Because these children and these parents need a high school. And don't you dare say we can't do it because we can. God knows I'm not very religious, but even, but even I know that the money will come if you have faith. And Pia sat down. <laughs> I just love it. Yes. Good on Pia. And, you know, your board were actually incredibly supportive, weren't they, really? Yes, they were. So uh, that was someone who doesn't necessarily know the board, presuming that the board are going to be against, but actually saying, we're the ones on the ground. We know what they need. Just go and get us the money to do it. That's right. That's right. It was a wonderful moment. You describe them fantastically in your book. Um, what have you done since leaving St. Lucy, since, fi- since finally just saying, okay, no more principal of school? You're still involved in school, clearly. Um, one of the things I've done is um, just start a support group for parents who've got a child with a disability, somewhere for them to vent, somewhere for them to be together with others who know what it's like so that when they turn up and they describe what their child's done that day, People aren't shocked. They just mm-hmm. understand. Um, so that's one of the things I'm really happy to be part of. Um, and I'm also chair of council in a, one of our Sydney schools. And I wrote the book. That took me quite a while. It does. <laughs> and, you know, the other thing I haven't mentioned about the book, which I'll, I'll just mention, you know, just towards the end, is you actually um, started a partnership with a sister school um, in the outback to be able to support Aboriginal children to have the facilities and benefit from the wisdom that you had and the resources that you had in your school. Amazing. 
Well, it's, it seemed to me obvious. We were getting by this time a great deal of support from all sorts of people in Sydney, um, financial support and practical support of other kinds. But um, a school that's in the outback, um, especially one that provides for Aboriginal students, um, is so disadvantaged. And yes, we connected with... Um, I went in search of a school that would um, benefit from our teachers' knowledge and experience. Um, and yes, so we formed a partnership with the um, Catholic Infant School in Wilcannia. And we, staff went out regularly each year um, and I went and visited. And But the thing that I did that was most helpful to them, apart from what our staff were doing with them, was um, supporting the principal because um, when he had particular needs and he couldn't meet them out there in Wilcannia. For example, he rang me one day and said um, that they had two or three families who'd had a lot of death, of children yeah. were dealing with with death and they had nobody who was experienced grief counsellor and he wanted some training for staff. So I contacted um, Dharma Kissip with the um, yeah. grief, what do they call The bereavement. Yes. And... Um, she, they actually went out there themselves and provided training to the staff. Um, extraordinary. There's no lack of willingness. Sometimes it just needs the connector, doesn't it? It to is. Be able that's to exactly the, what's needed. Yeah. There needs to be a connection made mm. because people are so ready to mm. help. Um, I went. He asked me to find a doctor who would come out because he was worried that the children's performance was being affected by their health, their mm. physical well-being, and. Um, and although there is a health service there, he just thought it would be great to have a doctor come and check out every child in yeah. the school. And um, so I spoke to one of our parents at St Lucy's um, who was, and he, he managed to find me somebody, an Aboriginal doctor who went out there. And um, it's just the things like that. that Family. Yes. You know, just it's about our connection together, yes. isn't it? Our interconnectedness. It's extraordinary how much help there is available if you can only talk to people. Yeah. Imagine that. Talking to each other. <laughs> Joe, you've been a star. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story with us. It's been a wonderful opportunity. Thank you, Lucy. Really beautiful. Thank you. Um, now, uh, you know, I can only share that for for me, um, working or well, seeing Joe each Wednesday morning is a is a blessing. But actually, getting to know Joe through her book, um, it really it really is a book that anyone who works with children or you know just to even understand your own children sometimes, it really helps to get a clearer picture of the importance of love, and that applies to parenting as well as teaching. Um, and perhaps even if you're not a parent, being more understanding of the people that we live with within our community. So thank you, Joe. Um, I can really feel this morning how important it is to remain true to yourself, to, to build a way of living that supports you to see that what you cannot change um, is okay, uh, but to let it go and not be defined by what you can't change. Don't walk by standards that you don't think are acceptable in someone else. So if you see a behavior that is unacceptable, um, Joe really inspired me and inspires me to speak up because, you know, this is a woman that didn't really wasn't getting much headway when she went out to find the, the community, the primary school. She needed the approval of the parents and would get out 
um, when most people would have stayed in the car and walked straight over to a group of parents who clearly had a lot of bottles around them and just talked to them and explained to them what she wanted to do and to build a sister school and was hugged within 12 hours by one of those parents. So you know what, if we don't speak up and speak out, if we don't just try and put off ourselves in someone else's shoes, you don't actually know what magic can happen. And the interconnectedness, interconnectedness of us all has no interest in our education, our abilities or our perceived disabilities. The borders, genders and the man-made divisions of religion, nationalities and races all come to nothing when there is a connection to the love we are all from. Next week is a little bit of a, um, a different show. It's about chronic pain. But as you will see, it's still part of the interconnected web because when you, when you hear what these people are going to share about the body and how it's connected and interconnected with our emotions, you're just going to understand how everything matters. There's a good teaser for you. Tune in live on Triple H 100.1. FM at 8.30 next Sunday morning or listen later in the day via the Stay in the Loop with podcasts. Once again, it's always pertinent to remind ourselves that whatever has or is happening in our lives, we are and always will be us. Constantly learning, but underneath and in our essence, amazing. The key is to re reconnect to that space and learn to build a relationship with our body that holds that essence so we can recognize when our body is trying to tell us something is not quite right and then seek support with the appropriate support service, be that mental or physical health. By listening and responding, we can build the tools to address what we do not yet feel equipped to manage. Because, of course, most likely we do have the skills, we just don't have the confidence to apply them. Look for support in the community. It is there, so open up to that support and learn to trust again. That way, we don't wait for life to come to us. We take ourselves to life and be the change we want to see. Till next week's show, be kind, be caring, be love, be all of you. Take care and see you next week. It's beautiful.